Last Sunday, Matthew ushered us into Jesus' Passion Week. Passion means suffering. And we saw how Mary of Bethany and Judas, at the beginning of this week, seemed to be the only two people beside Jesus who knew what was coming. And they responded to that news of his upcoming suffering and death in diametrically opposite ways. Judas, by betraying Jesus with 30 pieces of silver, Mary of Bethany preparing Jesus with absurdly expensive oil or ointment. And to the disciples, do you remember, it was a waste of money and a waste of their time. But to Jesus, it was beautiful. He says, she has done a beautiful thing. She is preparing me for my death and burial. And so I wonder if Jesus carried the scent of that ointment all week. Now look, I know how oil works now. My wife is into essential oils, okay? And I'm kind of into it because I like new things. I like hobbies. You know this about me. What I've learned about essential oils is that a little goes a long, long, long way. A little. I mean a little. And what Mary of Bethany did was probably the equivalent of 10 to 12 doTERRA, the big ones, bottles. <laughs> Just cracked it open on him. And if those oils are anything like the oils I'm acquainted with, that scent stayed all week. And so could the disciples smell it at the Last Supper? During Gethsemane? I wonder if the priests could smell his burial ointment during their council. I wonder if the soldiers could smell it on his hair as they mocked him with that false crown. I wonder if Jesus' mother could smell it on his feet as she sat at the foot of the cross. I wonder if Joseph of Arimathea, as he was holding Jesus' limp and blood-crusted body, if he could smell it as he held him close, carrying him to his new family too. And Matthew says in chapter 27 that Mary of Bethany was there as Joseph laid him in this family tomb. Did she smell it again? What was she thinking? And I ask this because Mary, it seems, knew that Jesus would not die a normal death, but would die a criminal's death. And therefore would not receive a proper burial. And so what was she thinking when she saw his lifeless body laid in that tomb? 
And then what was Mary thinking on Saturday, the day between? That silent day between. We don't hear about anyone, even Jesus, on Saturday. But our reading this morning begins on the dawn of the first day of the week. That's Sunday. If you would, follow along as I read the text. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, that's Mary of Bethany, went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. For he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. And we pray this in the name of the risen Lord Jesus. Amen. Dr. Anthony Bradley, my former professor, And my friend wonders why we don't really honor Holy Saturday. That is the day between Good Friday and Easter. He wonders why we don't really honor Holy Saturday in American church culture. I mean, when was the last time you went to a Holy Saturday service? Don't raise your hand and and negate my point, please. No, but really, when was the last time that you went to a Holy Saturday brunch? I think about it. Culturally, we have not discovered a way to market or to tame the reality that is that silent Saturday. Because Holy Saturday is the day of silence. It is the day between the death of Jesus and his resurrection. And so it is the day when God appears to be silent. Even if we by faith know he's at work, he appears to be silent. Things appear to be over. And for Jesus' closest followers, Holy Saturday is full of failure, it's full of fear, it's full of regret, and it's full of doubt. 
did we commit ourselves to another failed Messiah? Is this just all a hoax? And so if we gave Holy Saturday and what it represents more attention, I think two things would happen. First of all, for those of us who follow Jesus, our faith would resonate with our friends and our colleagues and our family because of its realism. They would see that our faith is not Pollyanna and naive. That when we see hard questions, we turn our eyes. Or that when we experience difficult emotions, that we just sort of ignore them with platitudes. They would see instead that our faith is wide-eyed and realistic about suffering, doubt, the apparent silence of God, about trauma. Trauma that will not go away until Jesus wipes our tears when he returns. About the struggle to believe, the struggle to wait. See, Holy Saturday has so much in common with our day-to-day life. We believe by faith that God is at work. But we don't see it sometimes. But second, if we really took time to live in Saturday, what happens on Sunday would carry more weight. More life-changing, worship-compelling, hope-sustaining force. If Jesus really rose from the dead, Remember, Paul said, if he didn't, then what we're doing this morning is worthless and pointless. But if he did, all that we sustained in Holy Saturday would have an answer. I think the hope of Sunday is built with the realism of Saturday. Now, Matthew doesn't have much to say about Saturday. Matthew, in our text, is about as silent as God must have felt to everyone in the story. But chapter 1 of chapter, I'm sorry, verse 1 of chapter 28 tells us that it is the dawn of the first day of the week. And we know that as this dawn approaches, the women and the disciples are still feeling the weight of Saturday. For the two Marys, there is still sorrow and fear that does not easily dissolve. And it's hinted at in verse 5, where the angel has to say, do not be afraid. And Jesus himself has to say, do not be afraid. And meanwhile, the disciples of Jesus, who were mentioned in verse 10, Jesus says, go to my disciples. were hiding, we know from the gospel of John, for fear. They were deeply afraid and regret and feelings of abandonment. This morning, you might have more feelings of doubt than faith. More failure than faithfulness. More fear than rest. That could be your soul. 
Maybe you feel like God is silent. Even as you trust, He is at work. Maybe you are here this morning after a year or two or more away from church. Perhaps you are giving God one more chance, as it were. Like the followers of Jesus in this text, life feels like Saturday, even though it's Sunday. (coughs) My question for you this morning is this. How does the resurrected Jesus meet you? (coughs) Approach you in your fear, in your failure. We know how. We have the answer. Because of what he says in this passage. There are three short phrases that come out of the resurrected vocal cords of Jesus himself. The same one who spoke this universe into existence speaks again. And what he says might be of comfort to you this morning. The first thing he says is greetings. Greetings. You see it in verse 9. Now we know what happens up to this point. Mary and Mary went to see the tomb, undoubtedly in grief and sadness, and perhaps with a feeling of despair. But instead, they encountered an empty tomb, a tomb without bones. When about 16 months ago, I visited Israel with my dad, it was a trip. To, to go to a tomb that was empty. I mean, every other religion, the founder of that religion has bones. And, and those bones are revered. But what really strikes me is the empty tomb. And what also really strikes me is the first words that Jesus speaks. Greetings, he says. It's like a hearty and glad greeting. It's like, hi, in our language. Hi. Hi. Doesn't that seem out of place? Doesn't that seem almost embarrassingly light in light of the gravitas of what just happened? I'm just being honest, as I'm studying this, and as I'm reading this, as I'm praying through this, I'm thinking, really? A cheery hiya? That's what you say. The first thing you say. Hi? But sit on it for a while. Sit on that for a while. Think of what he could have said. You failure? Why are you afraid? Did you doubt that I would be somehow still dead? You, you must have heard that I was going to raise again. I said it over and over and over again. How could you fail me? That's what he could have said. I am the resurrected Lord of the universe and you are a failure. That's what he could have said. And isn't that what we all kind of expect? 
Let's be honest. Don't we kind of expect Jesus to say that to us when we see him face to face? But Jesus gives us his welcome. We talk a lot about extending the welcome of Jesus at our church. It strikes me right now that the very first thing Jesus does in his resurrected body is extend his welcome. He says, hi. He says, greetings. It's like that time, think about this, when you wrecked your car. Now, I'm not going to speak for your family, but I remember when I got a call from my wife when she wrecked our car. uh, When we talked on the phone, she was worried that I would be mad that the car got wrecked. How could I be? What was the first thing I said? Are you okay? I love you. Friends, to your fears and to your failures, Jesus extends his welcome. I'll say it plain. The resurrection of Jesus means for his followers, his failed followers, his fearful followers, that he is glad to have you. He says, do not be afraid. In verse 10, this is number two. The second thing that comes out of Jesus' resurrected vocal cords is do not be afraid. Here Jesus repeats the most repeated command in the whole Bible. And you would think that he wouldn't have to say it, particularly in this moment, because they were worshiping Jesus at his feet. They were doing it right. They had an appropriate response to this Resurrected Lord. So why does he have to say, do not be afraid? Well, apparently it is possible to worship Jesus and be afraid at the same time. Which is a deep comfort to me. Isn't it the case with you? Even as you're here worshiping, even in your surest moments about him and his promises, aren't you still afraid? Jesus knows this, and what he says to you is do not be afraid. He assures you in your fear. He doesn't wait for your fear to be over. He actually approaches you in your fear and assures you in his fear. I learned this week that death and social humiliation are our two greatest fears. My wife pointed out, as I told her this, that social humiliation is basically living death. So death... Is our greatest fear. Death is our greatest fear. And that rings true to me. I'm afraid of death. I really am. And it crops up in strange ways. I was on vacation all last week to the same place I went as a child every year. And I had a hard time in my soul. There was a a weird and hard to explain sadness in my heart as I was there. As I think about it, I think it was because I was aware of death. It's hard to avoid. 
I know that's morbid. You're like, Joe, you're on vacation. What are you doing, man? Like, no, I, I know that's weird. But it showed up as I was showing my children the very sites that I used to go to as a small child, their age. And I thought to myself, man, how quickly I am aging. And if I'm honest, that was a sermon illustration, by the way. (laughs) Perfectly planned. I'm afraid of confronting my parents dying. I am afraid of death. I think Jesus is telling me this morning, I think he's telling you this morning, stop ignoring death. Take that fear to the resurrected Jesus and hear him say to you, do not be afraid. What a comfort it is that Jesus, who tasted death himself, who even grieved death of loved ones, but yet defeated death. And it's for us the guarantee that death does not have the final word for all who are in Christ. What a comfort it is that he still comes to you in your fear and understands and says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Let me say it plain. You do not need to be afraid of anything, even death. You don't even need to be afraid of being afraid in front of Jesus. The final phrase that answers our deepest failures and fears is easy to miss in this text. Jesus says, go and tell my brothers. In this small phrase, Jesus gives all of us a new identity. Did you see it? It's easy to miss. He implies that all who are laying hold of him with weak but empty hands of faith are in his family. He is our older brother. And we are his brother or sister. And God is our father. That's what he's saying. Paul puts it this way. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Listen, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. When Jesus raised from the grave, he was the firstborn of many brothers and many sisters. His whole family. He is the firstborn. He is the older brother. And you are now in his family. And what happens to Jesus happens to you. Paul says that his resurrection is the first fruit of a harvest. And we are that harvest. And the Holy Spirit gives us tastes of that harvest. That's what it means. When the scriptures talk about the Spirit promising new life. The author of Hebrews says it this way. For he who sacrifices and those who are sanctified all have one source. This is why Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother. To call you sister. So the resurrection means that sinners get Jesus' welcome always. He says greetings. The resurrection means that we have an answer to our fear. Do not be afraid. 
But this last phrase is unbelievably rich to me. We are adopted into his family. When you fail at your job, you might get fired. You at least get a warning that you might get fired. But when you fail in your family, if you are a good family, not even a perfect family, you will not get fired. There is a security. And if that's true in sinful, broken families, how much more true is it in God's family, friends? If God is my father and Jesus is my older brother, then it reframes all of my failures. And it reframes all of your failures. Bring them to mind right now. Don't hide from them anymore. What if I told you that by faith in Christ, you are now in God's family. And so that he approaches you as his beloved daughter and son. What kind of security would that give you that you do not now experience? J.I. Packer says, In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. And he establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of that fellowship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. Listen. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is even better. Friends, did you know that Jesus calls you brother and sister? Think of this. Peter. Peter. The disciple of Jesus. Peter, who plays Judas three times. Jesus calls brother. Before he even sees Peter. Before he says, Peter, feed my sheep. He calls him brother. Do you see the grace in that? In your failure, whatever it is. Do you believe that the resurrected Jesus invites you into his family? That you have security in his grace? Well, it's true. Do you know this, Jesus? Do you know this, Jesus? Now, you could say, all right, Jesus was raised from the dead, and so it doesn't really matter what I think. I owe him my obedience. And that would be true. Actually, that is true. If Jesus is Lord of all, then it doesn't really matter what we think about him or his commands. If he really did rise from the dead, and this is a real line in the sand. If he really did rise from the dead, consider the implications and what that means. There is a demand from the risen Lord. Just the very existence. It proves that he is indeed God in flesh. How amazing is it? And how much better is it that Jesus comes to us in his resurrection as Lord of all and he offers his Welcome. He offers his rest. And he offers entrance into his family. Come to him today. If you've never come to him, come to him now. Why are you waiting? You aren't guaranteed even this afternoon. Why not come now when the window is open? Those of us who have come to him, 
Like Mary, fall at his feet in your fear, but have assurance and do not be afraid. And rest in the assurance of being adopted in his family. Father, we come to you this morning and we ask that you would reassure us. If we have followed you our whole lives but never felt assured that you love us, that you welcome us, would we from your word this morning experience that assurance for the first time? And would it never go away? Would we enjoy that assurance and follow you the rest of our life knowing that we are adopted in your family? Lord, some of us maybe would consider ourselves religious or having believed intellectually about God, but we've never encountered Jesus as he is presenting himself to us this morning. As one who greets us in our failure. As one who invites us to rest in our fears. As one who calls us to himself. And we just ask now that we would follow him. We would lay down whatever program, whatever agenda we have concocted for ourselves. And we would instead find the freedom of service in Christ's kingdom. We would experience, by your Holy Spirit, the joy of forgiveness and the hope of resurrection. We come to you now. We repent of our sins. And we trust you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray.